Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This is the fourth and final Sunday of our series, Pursuing Racial Justice, How the Gospel Confronts America's Original Sin. In this series, we've been looking at the reality of racism in our country, how the church has even been complicit in that And asking questions like, what does the gospel have to say about this? And what should Christians do in response to racial injustice? We began our series by looking at how racial justice is rooted in the gospel of Jesus. We saw how the gospel isn't just about soul change, it's also about societal change. And then in week two, we heard Greg Boyd talk about why we don't get to opt out of this pursuit for racial justice, how we need to wake up to the systems that condition us, and that we need to resist the spiritual forces of evil that seek to separate and divide us. And then last week, we heard from Dominique Gilliard. And Dominique expanded on Acts chapter 16, showing us an example of how early Christians confronted a broken criminal justice system and shared how we can and should do the same today. Which brings us to the last installment in our series, but before I introduce you to our speaker, remember that it's Peace Sunday at Grantham Church, so today we'll be inviting you to give toward our in-gathering offering following this sermon. I've already told you about two local ministries that we're supporting this year, Young Professionals of Color of Greater Harrisburg and Wild Heart Ministries. But there's one more. Many of you are familiar with the work of Mennonite Central Committee. MCC is a relief service and peace agency representing 15 Mennonite brethren in Christ in Amish bodies in North America. That includes us. If you didn't know, I serve on MCC's East Coast Board as a rep for our conference, the Susquehanna Conference. So I've seen firsthand the amazing work this 100-year-old organization does, not just in our own country, but around the world. And in recent years, MCC has been addressing racial inequality in the U.S. criminal justice system. MCC East Coast usually supports, or actually does support, a staff person who works in the jails uh, with the families of people who are incarcerated and with those leaving incarceration to find housing and jobs. In addition, MCC also provides training for racial justice and gender equality. Therefore, we're proud to support the work of MCC with a portion of our offering this year. And finally, to bring our sermon series to a close, we've invited our friend and neighbor, Dr. Drew Hart, author and associate professor of theology at Messiah University, to bring us an inspiring and and challenging message to embody Christ's way of doing justice and work for more of the kingdom in our church, our community, and around the world. His newest book is called, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance by Harold Press. Let's listen to our brother Drew as he calls us to be a witness and follow the example of Jesus.
Hey, Grantham Church, it is good to be with you again and to be participating in this series that is exploring how the exploring the church's commitment to justice, particularly as followers of Jesus. Um, and so today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the Gospel of Mark in the 11th chapter. It's a familiar passage probably to most of you. We're going to catch up with Jesus right as he's approaching Jerusalem. This is a text that's often read during Palm Sunday, but I believe that it has a lot for us to consider when we pay attention to many of the details of Jesus's strategic action at the temple. So we will start at Mark 11 and go from verse 1 all the way through verse 24. And I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version. It says, When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples uh, and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. <coughs> Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they, had, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say this to if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. <clears throat> you know, in recent weeks, there's been a lot of conversation about what happened at the Capitol building and how some Americans sought to disrupt the democratic process. Many Christians have rightly named the problem, problematic expression of Christian nationalism that was expressed in that moment and how it's incompatible with the life and teachings of Jesus. Many people in particular seem to problematize the very fact that people would disrupt and shut down the processes in place, especially at the Capitol building. 
I, however, want us to think about it with a little bit more nuance. As we will see, Jesus also disrupted and shut down space that was considered much more sacred. It might be helpful to consider what were the motivations, the means, and the goal of Jesus and that of those that broke into the Capitol building. I would argue that the disruption in D.C. was fueled by white supremacy, white nationalism, conspiracy theories, and the goal of squelching the imperfect yet deepening democracy in this nation, as well as a desire for some to harm those in power. Jesus is willing to disrupt the status quo, but he's filled with a vision of God's shalom. That is the Hebrew vision encompassing all of creation. It is the state of justice and harmony and interconnectedness for all of us. So for our time together, I'd like for us to focus on the strategic nature of Jesus's intervention and, and how that invites us to take up our own cross and bear witness to God's reign here on earth. So let's start by looking at Mark 11, 1 through 7. In Mark's narrative, the escalating conflicts with the Jewish and Roman establishment climax as Jesus approached Jerusalem in the 11th chapter. Mark tells his readers that as Jesus approached Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead of the group into a nearby village, instructing them to find a cult that was tied up and to bring it to him so that he could use it to enter the city. Just following the story as it unfolds, we should wonder why Jesus wants them to bring a cult. And why, as he's arriving to the center of power in Jewish life, does he seem to have a plan already set in motion that just needs to be executed? I want to make the case that Mark and some of the other gospel writers are illuminating the significance of the person and ministry of Jesus precisely through his strategic messianic theatrics, right? That Jesus could have simply just walked into the city uh, with the crowd, but instead Mark depicts Jesus intentionally orchestrating a plan that required strategic preparation. And as we will see in a moment, getting a colt rather than, let's say, a horse was important for the reign of God that he was embodying in this moment. This was all socio-political theater being staged. Mark's depiction of Jesus shows him as organized. He's come to Jerusalem uh, during Passover, uh, and he has a plan that he intends to execute. And Mark's telling of the good news, Jesus is a master strategist carefully executing his messianic demonstration, which begins with obtaining this cult. Now, many Christians prefer to think of Jesus as just coming to, uh, to Jerusalem kind of neutral and apolitically, only to die for our sins. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is unveiling, he's, he's a perceptive strategist is what we see, who's engineering particular responses from the people through theatric public protests. And that's precisely what we find here, right? Jesus' strategic preparation places a challenge, I think, at the feet of the church. Too often we in the church leave the work of sociopolitical strategy to Christians who allow partisanship to overcome their allegiance to God's kingdom or those with greedy motivations, or those in search of more money, more power, more influence, more fame. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're called to be uh, wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, right? We're called to work and scheme and plot for good, for God's delivering presence on the earth, for justice, righteousness, and peace in our world. And we do this while refusing to use the evil means that the powerful employ. We remain as innocent as doves by employing strategies of peacemaking and nonviolence, by overcoming evil with good, through radical love and prophetic intervention, through vulnerable non-cooperation with anything that clashes with the reign of the Messiah. We are invited to scheme and plot for good and to engage in strategic preparation in the way of Jesus. 
Many people are familiar with Dr. King's faithful witness in Birmingham, but few recognize that Project C was actually the brainchild of Wyatt C. Walker, who was a creative strategist who planned to confront the pressure points of Birmingham, especially the business districts. Uh, many know how the story ends with children filling the streets, arrested in masses, attacked by dogs and sprayed with water hoses. Um, but those events didn't happen um, randomly, right? Leading to civil rights legislation. Uh, they were the result of preparation and planning and strategy. The goal was to dramatize the structural oppression through creative political theatrics. Um, often when justice on the, on the ground happens large scale, it's because people put their minds together and plans and plotted for good. Action that leads to victories like these require intentionality. And so Jesus's orchestrating the cult to ride on was itself central to Jesus's intentionally creative demonstration, which is why Mark takes so much time describing the disciples being instructed about obtaining this specific animal, right? And then let's move on to verses 8 through 10. And, um, and we see that Mark tells us that after the disciples follow through with Jesus's plan to secure this cult, people threw their cloaks on the animal, which Jesus began to ride. Crowds began to form and spread their cloaks and branches on the road for Jesus to travel upon, responding as if he were royalty, beginning a new reign. The, the political theatrics Jesus designed clearly evoked something deep and profound within the people who responded to him with cries of Hosanna and blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Formally, Hosanna was used for praise, but it literally meant save us. And, and I think both meanings are probably being expressed simultaneously in this moment. The people believe that, that God, God is using Jesus as their liberator who will restore the kingdom of David. They look to Jesus as their, their savior, the one whom they have placed all their hopes for deliverance from oppression, exploitation, and degradation that they experience every day. They believe that a new age for Israel will begin in Jesus, that he will inaugurate restoration and ignite independence from their occupying oppressors. But, but what was it that sparked such radical expectations and hopes from the crowd? If we are to understand the response of the people, we must recognize Jesus's actions in this moment as the execution of strategic revolutionary symbolism. Um, and I believe that there are two primary images Jesus is evoking for his Jewish audience that would spark this kind of response, right? There's two different kinds of, of um, images that sparked it. And so I think the, the, the first thing um, is, first Jesus symbolically embodying Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 right? Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. And this is what it says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your kingdom comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble and riding, watch this, on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey, right? And then it doesn't just stop there. It goes on and it, and it says this about this one, right? This one that they're talking about. It says, he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and... Watch this, the battle bow shall be cut off, right? 
the chariot, the war horse, the battle bow, and he shall command peace to the nations. It says his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, so this is one of the things that that is being evoked, right? The crowd on the road were Jews who would have understood this text and the meaning of Jesus's dramatized uh, demonstration. Their response indicates that they were filled with faith that God was about to do a new thing, that the divine deliverance was unfolding before their very eyes. They believed divine intervention was about to be ignited through human faithfulness. The creator and sustainer of all things was about to take action in history through his anointed king, giving them ample reason to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna. There's a second very powerful reason, though, for their response as well. It's not only the Zechariah passage. Um, the Jews more than 100 years prior had successfully revolted against Syrian oppression. During that revolt, Judas and the Maccabees rode triumphantly into Jerusalem in a similar fashion, with palm branches layered on the road before them. By the time of Jesus, the Maccabees were legendary. Because of them, the possibility that God might actually intervene in their affairs through a messianic figure was etched into the minds of the people. You see, Jesus' choice to enter into Jerusalem in this particular way was loaded with radical symbolism for both scripture and history. The crowd's response of praise and turning to Jesus for deliverance from their hardships were not coincidental. They had just experienced very strategic revolutionary symbolism through Jesus. This response evoked in the hearts and minds of the people was exactly the kind of response one would expect given Jesus' actions. Their hopes for deliverance from their oppressors and the restoration of Israel were not out of nowhere. The evoking of their liberatory hopes was part of the intended goal of Jesus' symbolic action. Strategic revolutionary symbolism occurs when a, a particular action or embodiment or prophetic witness awakens people to the awareness that another world is possible, right? Another social order can come into existence. Often, empires and those with concentrated power project the impression that they will never cease, that things will always be as they are. In such conditions, the best option for survival is just to align as best as possible with the current arrangement. Hope for anything else is often beyond what seems possible. Sometimes some are just not able to envision God's dream of a just world for us. But this kind of, of, of symbolism can begin to foster hope. In the case of Jesus' messianic demonstration, this strategic revolutionary symbolism broke open a subversive hope in God's Messiah and in a new age that was dawning. And so in light of that, here comes Jesus riding on a cult. As Jesus symbolically fulfilled scripture and evoked historical consciousness in the people in an awakening, as the people awakened to the Messiah's reign, um, despite the many risks, many of them began to place their bets that divine intervention was breaking through in the person of Jesus. As Jesus rode, each branch or cloak that was laid down before him represented the desire to break free from captivity to the status quo. Each praise lifted up by a member of the crowd represented the recognition that Caesar is not Lord over their lives. Their praise and their cries of salvation were directed to the only worthy recipient. Their embodied worship was a, an act of awakening and expectation. They had previously attributed 
uh, to their current social order, uh, the, a divine attribute, basically an eternal permanence, right? Which is idolatrous. But now through the Messiah, they, they could imagine new possibilities of God's deliverance breaking forth. Don't miss that the two symbolic images evoked by Jesus' action actually clash with one another some. The Maccabean revolt was a violent overthrow of the system. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 is a peacemaking liberator that ends chariots and the war horse and the battle bow, which grounded military power. Um, and, and he brings peace to the nations. They both bring victory and end to oppression, but the means are different. Here we find Jesus awakening the people through these powerful symbols of liberation, but ultimately he rides in on a humble colt, not a military horse. This is God's deliverance, where divine power is expressed through human weakness rather than military strength. A great example, though, of a strategic revolutionary symbolism in more recent history occur, occurred in the salt march that Mahatma Gandhi led against the British in the 20th century. The British had taken complete control over salts in India. They controlled the production and taxed it as well. So in March 1930, Gandhi and 70 companions began the salt campaign was a 240-mile walk to the sea. Gandhi and his companions stopped at town after town announcing the campaign, rallying villagers and inspiring people to engage in Satyagraha, which translated into truth force and was his way of talking about nonviolent resistance. Thousands and thousands of people caught the vision and joined the mass movement heading for the shore. And so on April 6th, the group arrived at the beach where Gandhi engaged in a very simple act. He basically just took a handful of salt from the ocean. This action was strategic revolutionary symbolism. When Gandhi defied the unjust laws of the British Empire by holding up the salt that he took from the sea, his action had this kind of liberating effect on the people watching. Uh, Indians everywhere began disobeying British claims over salt, boiling seawater, making their own salts in defiance. While this act alone did not end British rule, it did revolutionize the mindset of many people. Freedom became a real possibility. We should never underestimate the power strategic revolutionary symbolism can have in delivering people from passive submission to oppression when enacted through a prophetic witness courageously in public. And then I want you to move along in the text to verse 11, right? You see that Mark tells us that Jesus entered into Jerusalem and headed straight for the temple. Those with him must have been thinking that everything was about to go down, that this was the place and time when the Messiah would liberate their homeland. Divine time had taken them to this very moment, it seems, when the Messiah's reign would go public and be made manifest for the world to see. People's expectations were at a peak and, and the crowd's anticipation was just bubbling over. From the start of the Gospel of Mark until this point, um, you see that Jesus has been engaging in escalating conflicts, right, in preparation for our uh, climax. And now this Jesus versus the uh, elite establishment, the temple establishment, um, this clash was just inevitable, right? But unlike Matthew and Luke, which portrayed Jesus beginning his demonstration the moment he arrives at the temple, Mark tells us that Jesus entered the temple, looked around while scouting up the situation, and then left. It's hard to imagine a more anticlimactic moment. Mark's narration tells us that rather than taking revolutionary action at the temple right away, Jesus engages in a reconnaissance mission first. He takes notes on the situation and then discerns that it was too late in the day to initiate what he had planned. This would have been especially puzzling for onlookers because the crowd was with Jesus. They were ready for action. 
For those watching, this had to be a terribly disappointing and underwhelming end to what had begun as a revolutionary moment. However, knowing the right time to act is, is an important feature of Jesus' discernment throughout the Gospel of Mark. Um, what we see in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus frequently trying to keep his identity a secret because he didn't want people to broadcast his messianic intentions for everyone quite yet. Some Christians make distinctions between chronos time and kairos time. In the New Testament, with chronos time is more chronological and kairos time is the right season or moment for something to occur. Jesus, in this narrative, is strategically discerning his kairos timing. Uh, a common proverb in the black church is, God is never on schedule, but he's always right on time, right? And those engaging in strategic discernment understand that just because everyone is all hyped does not mean it's the right time for every kind of action. The church needs to pray and seek God to discern our kairos moments. Yeah, we want to strike when the iron is hot, but it's always must align with God's delivering presence. What's God doing, right? We want to go with the currents of the Spirit's activity rather than against it. We also want to use wisdom, right? Engaging in strategic discernment involves using our minds and being conscious of factors that could thwart our ultimate goals. In this case, Jesus' decision was simple. He wouldn't have had the dramatic impact that he wanted in his demonstration had he acted impulsively. Despite the anticlimactic nature of the moment, Jesus and his disciples quickly slipped out of the city and headed back to Bethany for the night. You know, Dr. King also had a famous unpopular and anticlimactic decision in his Southern Freedom Movement work as well, right? In 1965, King and, and the SCLC came to Selma, Alabama, a decision that was problematic already because Alabama was seen as SNCC, right, territory, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee territory, which was filled with radical, a radical group of young people who had been engaging in grassroots organizing work on the grounds, right? Um, and so nonetheless, Dr. King and SCLC came to Selma and the nonviolent demonstrations there drew national attention very quickly because of Sheriff Jim Clark and others from Selma who seemed incapable of responding to black people without anything other than blunt and unveiled physical violence. In February, during a smaller evening march, police troopers ambushed the crowd, shooting and killing Army veteran Jimmy Lee Jackson. And Jackson's death came just five days after the assassination of Malcolm X, who had recently visited Selma himself. Movement leaders decided that Jackson's casket would be walked from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama's capital, as a symbolic act. While that symbolic action was never carried out, a march was organized shortly after the funeral. About 500 marchers arrived at Selma's Brown Chapel and began walking two by two, heading to Montgomery when they arrived at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And there they found that it was blocked by waves of white officers and troopers. They proceeded anyway, then they were, then they were warned that they had two minutes to turn around. The marchers persisted and all hell broke loose. One trooper yelled, get them, get those N-words. Troopers and officers lunged at the nonviolent, unarmed marchers, setting off tear gas and cracking skulls with their billy clubs. Many marchers, finding themselves trapped and unable to make their way through the armed officers, thought they might die. Eventually, the marchers were able to escape and return to the church, while those who had been seriously hurt were taken to Good Samaritan Hospital. This repressive act of violence against these nonviolent black marchers would be remembered as Bloody Sunday. 
thousands of people who saw the news footage uh, of this violence in Selma came to support the movement. But the movement leaders received an injunction forbidding them from holding another march. Dr. King and others felt that they needed to confront the violence with courage, especially since all these people had come um, to join them. Once again, when marchers arrived at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they met state troopers uh, waiting for them. Dr. King had been out of town for the first march, but this time he was present and in the front of the line. Seeing the troopers, he stopped, knelt down, and prayed. When he rose to his feet, the marchers behind him were antsy. Many had ironically actually come to non-violently confront the law and order that kept the city under its thumb. Dr. King, however, discerned that going against the court injunction rather than waiting to get it reversed and have a legal ruling on their side would be a short-term win, but long-term mistake and could cripple their ultimate goals. He made the anticlimactic and very unpopular decision to turn the thousands of marchers around and head back to the church. This decision was likely the impetus for the final fracture between SCLC and SNCC. As Dr. King predicted, they did get the court's approval to demonstrate. So on March 21st, 1965, for the third time, nonviolent protesters gathered to march all the way from Selma to Montgomery. This time, the crowd of marchers was very large and included those who came in response to the invitation of Dr. King and others. And federal marshals and troopers escorted them and in them instead of blocking their way. By the time the crowd reached Montgomery, after days of walking and camping, it had grown to over 25,000 people. In Montgomery, Dr. King delivered his famous speech calling out the, word, the words of uh, the Civil War era hymn, how long, not long, because my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpets that never call retreat. He is lifting up the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. If we were to move just a little more to Mark 11, 12 through 19, we see that Mark tells us that while Jesus is leaving Bethany and on his way back to the temple, he's hungry, right? Uh, and he sees a fig tree in the distance, and as he approaches it, he discovers that the plant has produced no fruit. We're told that the reason for the lack of fruit is because it was not the season for figs. Fair enough. But then Jesus does something that, at least to us North American uh to us and our sensibilities, it seems odd, right? He curses the tree for having no fruit. So now no one will ever eat fruit from it again. Yes, he, he curses a fig tree for having no fruit, even though it isn't its season to produce fruit. At first glance, this moment seems like it has nothing to do with the rest of the story. Why would Jesus get upset with a fig tree for not producing fruit when it isn't the right season? That should be a clue to readers that, that his judgment on the fig tree is symbolic for something more significant. We must continue the story to see how it parallels the fig tree's fate. Um, and so Jesus condemns the tree, and then the disciples and Jesus move on and re-enter Jerusalem. 
Now it's finally time for Jesus to escalate things through a, a prophetic demonstration. The time has come and he has the perfect audience for his dramatic political theater. The people's hopes and expectations are upon him. They believe that Jesus will be their liberator. They are hoping that Jesus will restore Israel, that the Jews will finally get freedom. Uh, Rome has been a devastatingly powerful empire over them. And the Jews throughout the Galilean countryside have been experiencing excruciating poverty. So in, in scripture, God repeatedly judges oppressive empires, right? It's pretty consistent, whether it was Egypt or Babylon or Assyria. Uh, divine judgment against har harming the vulnerable was consistent. God judges concentrated power that exploits the oppressed and crushes the poor. With that in view, there's hope that God's Messiah will target the forces and seats of power that have a foot on the necks of the people. And so when Jesus finally enters the temple, he doesn't direct his righteous indignation towards Rome. Instead, it is the economic, political, and religious practices of the temple that Jesus has come to judge. God has always stood against oppression and exploitation, against imperial domination and concentrated power that crushes the poor, the widow, and the foreigner. And the Jerusalem establishment had become complicit in that very thing. The temple leadership and high priestly families benefited from the temple tax, from their collaboration with Rome, from the sacrifices of the Jews who traveled from all over to worship God. The pillars of power resided in Jerusalem. Jesus did not need to confront an external Babylon when the ways of Babylon, which is concentrated power and exploitation, are occurring right in the temple by the hands of the Jerusalem power brokers. Jesus holds a mirror up to the rulers and authorities, to the temple bankers, to those profiting off of the expensively priced animals, and those benefiting from the exploitation of the poor Jewish masses. Jesus engages in a strategic, prophetic disruption of the temple. The, the evil practices are unveiled for what they are, and Jesus brings God's judgment. For the moment, all business as usual is halted through Jesus' prophetic disruption. The Jerusalem elite certainly would have thought that Jesus' behavior was irresponsible and uncivil. In general, when, when the status quo is working for one's favor, they are inclined to think that disrupting the central institutions of society is always inappropriate and disrespectful. The intensity with which Jesus damages property and intervenes to disrupt the commercial flow of money would have been described as outrageous and criminal by the authorities. This strategic prophetic disruption by Jesus had three targets. Jesus disrupted the temporal, temple overall, shutting down the flow of currency, which turned the house of prayer into an exploitative marketplace. But even more targeted, his, his disruption overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Ancient Jews in that Greco-Roman society saw Roman money as dirty and ungodly, so the temple used Jewish Tyrian currency. The temple created a, a holier alternative for travelers seeking to offer sacrifice to God. First, understand that worshipers couldn't sacrifice an old or unhealthy animal because the sacrifice would be inspected to see if it was worthy to be given to God. If the temple priests, by the final word, decided that it was not worthy, the worshipers would need to purchase a temple animal. However, if the money brought to pay for a sacrificial animal was a Roman coin, it would need to be exchanged for Tyrian coinage. After the worshippers converted their currency into temple coins and made their purchase, they would finally have an animal to sacrifice. Between the temple exchange rate and the purchase of the sacrifice, they could easily be exploited twice. Um, I won't lie, this kind of reminds me of trips to Chuck E. Cheese with my kids, right? I got three boys. 
I get to this place designed to entertain kids with food, games, and prizes, but my money is not going to work there, right? I need to exchange it for Chuck E. Cheese currency. Of course, the amount of money you pay um, so you can get the exchange seems ridiculous, but it's for the kids, so you just go along with it. You give the kids the Chuck E. Cheese money and they run off and spend it all on games where they receive tickets in return. Yes, another currency. This double currency exchange just throws you off because it's hard to calculate its worth at this point. After eating in an hour of play, the kids are tapped to drive coins, so you gather them together and head to the gift store in the corner where they can turn in their tickets for their prize. As you peruse the options on display, you, you realize quickly there is no perfect, you know, choice here. Uh, to get the most bang for your buck, you convince the kiddos to limit their choice to the best item they can get from the store in exchange for all their tickets. And so after spending 50 bucks in coins, they each walk out of the store holding an eraser and a tootsie roll, and they are smiling and happy, but you leave feeling as if you have just been pickpocketed. It's a terrific scam they run with that giant mouse, right? Uh, well, these temple worshippers might have felt something like that, but worse, after moving through the temple system while desiring to do nothing but offer a sacrifice to God. Too often it was a well-oiled machine of concentrated exploitation that squeezed the last bits of money from poor people. Exploitation came through tithes, coin exchanges, and sacrifice on top of the overall debt these struggling people were entrapped with. Uh, because of the merciless practices of these wealthy elite families in Jerusalem that denied them their jubilee. Do not miss it. The problem wasn't merely that there was buying and selling in God's house. It, it was the flow of currency and the temple was going against its vocation and purpose. The temple was supposed to be a place of prayer and worship to God. And it was supposed to form the people of God to be a people of justice. They were supposed to make provisions for the poor, care for the widows and orphans, care for the strangers in the land. Bringing shalom to all people was the vocation of the people of God. But now the economic flow of wealth was creating the haves and the have-nots. The Jerusalem power brokers were getting wealthy from the temple offerings. History and archaeological evidence indicate that many of these Jerusalem elite families lived in extravagant wealth, while the masses of people were malnourished and in deep poverty. The temple, which was meant to be a house of worship for all nations, had become a hideout and a refuge for those that used their concentrated power to exploit the poor. When Jesus said they had turned the temple into a den of robbers, he's invoking Jeremiah, right? In Jeremiah chapter 7, centuries before Jesus, there was a prophetic judgment against the temple. The leaders thought that they could do no wrong because they were the temple leaders and they thought they would reign forever. In contrast, the prophetic word to them is that God is coming and will judge them for their mistreatment of the poor and the most vulnerable in society. And so Jesus' strategic prophetic disruption is in fact the culmination and embodiment of that same prophetic judgment from Jeremiah. God and Jesus Christ has come to the temple and stands against all forms of oppression and exploitation. This judgment holds true regardless of whether it is aimed at an external empire or within the very life and institution of God's people. Jesus' prophetic disruption and divine intervention of the temple immediately placed people into a moment of dilemma. In the dilemma situation, people are forced to respond one way or the other. There's, there's no distant, apathetic ignoring of God's intervening through prophetic disruption. One must decide how will one respond. 
Obviously, repentance is the right choice, but those in power rarely are willing to leave their old way of life sustained by the exploitation of others so they can follow Jesus. So in that scenario, the dilemma for those who reject repentance becomes whether they will allow the disruptor to continue to demonstrate and denounce their complicity in the establishment, which of course means the person will continue to unveil the injustice for what it really is. Allowing such prophetic witness to go on erodes the foundation of the institution's power and respect. The other option is for those who wield the power to try to put an end to the thing causing them trouble. These temple leaders choose the latter and immediately begin looking for ways to crush this messianic movement by taking out its leader. There are always consequences for truly engaging in prophetic disruption of this old order. This is because the old order believes it will live forever, and its mangled ethics lead it to do anything at all costs to continue on. This is no surprise to Jesus, though. The empire always strikes back, right? There's always a backlash to eliminate the threat to power. Jesus understood this well before beginning his revolutionary action. And he expects that his followers would also count the costs and accept the consequences of clashing with the powers of society. Jesus and the disciples leave after a full day of disruption and a temple takeover of the teaching ministry. Once again, they, they slip out of the city. The, the next morning they pass by the fig tree they saw the day before, but now it has withered away. Jesus explains to them that if they have faith, even this mountain, referring to the Temple Mount, can be thrown into the sea if they believe it. That statement and the symbolism of the fig tree leaves us with a dangerously subversive pronouncement by Jesus. That is, like the fig tree that was not producing fruit, the Temple and its representatives are not producing true fruit. It has lost its holy vocation. It has veered off from its mission. It has missed the mark of its purpose. And now it has, be it has been condemned. Chen Myers explains that the fig tree was a symbol of peace, security, and prosperity in Israel. The fruitful fig tree was a metaphor for God's blessings, while a withering tree symbolized judgment. Therefore, just as the fig tree had begun to wither away, so Jesus proclaimed the end to the concentrated power controlled by the temple elite, which will also dry up. Babylon from without or from within will come to an end and will not last forever. But do not twist Jesus' judgment. This is not a supersessionist turn. Jewish people will continue to walk in covenant with God. But anytime, anywhere, dens of robbers rear their ugly head, God stands decisively against it. This was a condemnation of the Jerusalem establishment in power, not a condemnation of all Jews. God's consistency on this matter throughout scripture extends divine judgment of the temple in this one moment and presses it outward toward all imperial and institutional dens of robbers. Every practice of oppression and harm, every institutionalized coercion and exploitation, every hierarchy and form of human domination that exists are caught in the currents of this judgment. The old order won't last always because Jesus' reign and God's deliverance has begun. You know, my, my invitation was to uh, uh, invite you guys to think about how we can engage and seek justice as followers of Jesus. So I just want to share one last story that I think will be um, helpful for us as we go. So I, I spoke already about um, uh, King in Birmingham. And King in Birmingham in um, 1963, as he, he went there, um, there was a moment in time where there were many people who were not 
uh, responding to the movement like they expected. Many adults were not coming out. They needed people to get arrested in mass. And it just wasn't happening. Um, and one of the problems is that they were running out of uh, bail money. And on top of that, um, they just got an injunction um, not to march, not to to protest in Birmingham. And, and add another layer to it, Passover weekend and Easter weekend was right around the corner. And so King and a whole bunch of the leaders were together and they were in a hotel room discussing what to do next. And there they are, they're sitting there and they're trying to figure out where they go next, what, what should they do. And, you know, there were, um, if there were 10, 15 people there, there were probably 11 to 16 views, right, in terms of what people needed to do. Some were saying, look, we need to press on. We need to, it doesn't matter if we get arrested, we just got to keep going. Others were saying, oh, hold on, hold on. Why don't we send Dr. King to go do some fundraising so we can get that bail money up um, and then we can figure out what we want to do next. Others were saying, hold on, hold on. Look, we're all pastors. Most of us are pastors. We we got to be with our churches on Sunday, right, for Passover weekend. We, we can't be um, in prison or locked up in jail. We've got to actually be, you know, serving our churches. This is the most important uh, Christian holiday and Christian date in the Christian calendar, right? And so they're all debating all these different positions about what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And the whole time that they're discussing debating, King is actually just sitting there quietly. He's not saying anything at all. He's just listening. Finally, uh, Dr. King gets up and he just leaves the room. There's this, uh, it's actually, if you can know, like a hotel room that has like uh, a living space and an extra bedroom. He goes into the bedroom and closes the door and leaves everybody else discussing uh, what they should do. Kind of strange, um, especially after he hadn't said one word. Um, now, if you can imagine most images of King, King is usually dressed with um, a black suit and a white shirt and a black tie and this kind of clean classic look, right? Um, well, it's interesting that King, he when he comes back out, he opens the door and he's changed his clothes. Now, all of a sudden, King is wearing a blue work shirt and blue jeans. And the moment that he comes out and everybody sees him wearing this blue work shirt and blue jeans, everybody knows exactly what that means. It meant that, that we're getting to work. We're rolling up our sleeves and we've got work to do, right? Um, and, that, and so what happens is they go out. Um, him, in fact, there's this famous picture of, of King with Ralph Abernathy and Fred Shuttlesworth, and they're all wearing blue jeans and blue work shirt uh, as they go and they march and as they get arrested and they get um, thrown into the Birmingham jail. And it's actually there that King writes the famous letter from Birmingham jail. Now, I think for us, this is not just uh, something to think about, to, to be like, oh, that was an interesting thing that King did. I think this is an invitation for us as well. My invitation for all of us is that as followers of Jesus, it's time for us to put on our blue jeans. It's time for us to put on our blue jeans for justice. It's time for us to put on our blue jeans for righteousness. It's time for us to put on our blue jeans for peace, for God's shalom, for God's dream for us, right? It's time for us to put on our blue jeans because we've got 2 million people locked up um, in prison. We have the largest prison population in world history. Right. Uh, it's time for us to put on our blue jeans because uh, we've got undocumented immigrants, even in our own communities um, that are afraid um, to move about freely in our neighborhood and flourish as God dreams for them. Uh, we've got to put on our blue jeans because we've got 
educational uh, funding disparities based on race all throughout Pennsylvania. And so that on the West Shore, the white school districts are being uh, funded more than uh, black and brown students in Harrisburg, right? We've got to put on our blue jeans uh, for those that don't have health care, adequate housing or food, um, those who are struggling um, from a whole range of obstacles that are presented in our society because our society is unjust. It's, it's not the way God intended it to be. God invites us to do justice, that is to set things right, uh, to, to, to seek to return things to the way that God intended them to be. And so we need to have a vision of God's shalom, and then we need to recognize that, that this world is not that. And then we need to join in with God's active presence. God is at work healing and restoring um, and bringing dignity to people who are struggling and suffering. Uh, we're called to, to help those who are on the fringes, the margins and edges of society, the least, the last and loss of society. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor and release the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so my invitation for us right now, uh, Grantham Church, is that we would put on our blue jeans and let's get to work. Hopefully I'll see you in the streets. God bless.